Welcome to another episode of the Bear Market Brief Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron, and while we never believed it could happen, 2020 is now drawing to a close. On this edition of the podcast, we'll be taking a swing through Washington, D.C., where in a little bit over a month, the Biden administration will take power. So what might bilateral relations look like under Biden? And moreover, looking back on the last four years, was Trump actually good for Russia? Joining us to explore this is Lincoln Pigman. Lincoln is a specialist on the U.S.-Russia bilateral relationship, and we had a great conversation about all facets of the issue. We hope you enjoy. Lincoln, great to have you for today's episode. Thanks for having me on, Aaron. To get started, before we get to the issue at hand, I uh, just wanted to ask you if you might introduce yourself to the audience a bit for us. Absolutely. So at the moment, I'm an associate at the London office of Blackbeak, which is a risk advisory firm. But previously, I was an undergraduate student at King's College London and a master's student at Oxford University, where I uh, studied Russian studies. And more broadly, I've been working on Russia since I started my higher education, writing, uh, reporting, working uh, as a freelance journalist from Russia and the former Soviet Union. So bringing a few different approaches here. Very interesting. Uh, so to the meat and potatoes of today's episode, we're talking about U.S.-Russia foreign policy, specifically from the U.S. perspective here, especially with the presidential transition now, what it looks like actually happening in earnest. I wanted to discuss, to start, where U.S.-Russia relations stands today in the current era, or perhaps more honestly, optimistically, how bad are they right now? I think it's all relative. If you'd asked me to predict circumstances under which a Democratic administration comes into power in 2021, three, four years ago, one of the comparisons I was drawing back then was between the way Iran is seen in D.C. and the way that Russia is seen in D.C. I was expecting after 2016 to witness this sort of Iranification of Russia standing in Washington. But it hasn't been as extreme as that. There definitely is a lot of hostility. I think in some quarters of D.C. there is sort of appetite for uh, vengeance, if you want to call it that. But on the whole, I think that the signals that you're getting from the incoming administration speak to restraint in how punitive they want to be coming in, really an effort to... Uh, you know, make clear to those listening that there is going to be a balance, there is going to be a two-track policy going forward. And uh, I think that's good news for Russia in some respects and bad news for Robert in others, but we'll get into that. So turning to the, I guess, the two tracks, the issues at play, uh, the diplomacy. Yeah. As far as hot buttons, you mentioned revenge. So, I mean, there's the interference surrounding 2016, you know, regardless of the actual impact that had. What are the kind of the key sticking points right now in the relationship? Yeah, so obviously I think there's a sense that there hasn't really been a resolution of the interference issue, uh, not only because as recently, if you ask some officials, 2020, certainly 2018, Russia has continued its interference efforts. Not only that, but um, it's also become a broadening of the conversation where it's not really enough to push back on Russia's interference in U.S. elections were, you know, equally invested in securing allies from that sort of uh, interference. And that's obviously a sticking point in, uh, in itself, as, as we mentioned. But I think some of the classic issues that have pervaded the relationship in the post-Soviet period are still there. There's still Russia's relationships with what Washingtonians would call rogue states or pariah states, where uh, Russia and the U.S. just can't get on the same page, even when they recognize that they're issues 
to be concerned about. Arms control is sort of the most problematic it's been, in, you know, since since Bush. Although, you know, even even then, I don't think it was as dysfunctional. Um, the domestic uh, dimension, so Russia's uh, continued, um, you know, erosion of whatever democratic freedoms there are there, uh, violations of human rights. These are going to become even more salient under this administration than they were under the last, much more salient, and probably more so than they were under the Obama administration. So I think interference is, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, a novel problem in the relationship, I think. But certainly the, no, the insights that the decision makers in both countries have into the more classic sticking, uh, you know, sticking points, those are going to still be useful come January. So interesting to, to list all those. I think we can and should talk about the arms control issue. This would be the renewal of START, if I'm not mistaken. You know, brings me right back to the early Obama administration when that happens. Time has really flown uh, in yep. that regard. Curious that Ukraine didn't come up. So do you think there might be grounds, if not to resolve the issue? I think that's, you know, both sides are, are rather dug in there. But there's kind of an understanding. You mentioned kind of two tracks before. So... Is there an opportunity? Is there kind of operating room, room for maneuver to deal with these issues separately uh, instead of, you know, piecemeal or rather all at once? Since 2014, there's been very little appetite in D.C. to look at uh, the former Soviet Union or the in-between states, you will, as a site for Russian-U.S. cooperation. Uh, I think the, um, the notion that Russia can be a uh, good faith partner in resolving conflicts there. It's just not really, it doesn't really hold water anymore in D.C., rightly or wrongly. And especially, I think, to, here you have to take into account Biden's own politics on the subject, because before he was vice president, he was deeply committed to those in between states and their democratization and economic transitions. He was very vocal about it when he was on uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He was um, actively involved in that policy as vice president when it came to Ukraine, especially. And we're going to see that become, I think, you know, a probably defining feature of the Biden-Russia relationship because the last four years, I think it's been a lot of the ways in which people have said it's been a free ride for Moscow or a sort of vacation from criticism or pressure. That's been exaggerated, but certainly one respect, respect in which that's true is that it's been a four-year vacation from high-level criticism of human rights violations and its role in a region. I think this administration has really been uninterested in talking about Russia's continued, you know, encroachment on Georgian sovereignty, Ukrainian sovereignty, Moldovan sovereignty. These aren't really issues that, you know, pet issues in the administration. Uh, neither were human rights in Russia itself. So I think you're definitely going to see that emerge under Biden. You know, he's signaled that he's going to be breaking the Obama era policy of not selling lethal weapons, not just because it's already that precedent has already been set by the Trump administration, but because, you know, there's an appetite for doing even more of it. And uh, given the issues that Ukraine is going through right now with its, uh, you know, stalled reforms under Zelensky, you know, the uh, the window of opportunity that's been opened in Moldova, my son being, you know, elected president there. I think that the Biden administration is not going to defer to Moscow on those and, uh, you know, let down opportunities to try to invigorate positive change there. So it's doubling back to the issue of arms control, just because arguably the stakes, the, the cost of miscalculation there is very easily the highest. Talking about what's prevented. So the issue at play, as, as best I understand, is, again, the START Treaty limiting nuclear arsenals of both countries set for renewal. There's been a lot of, I guess, 
friction in negotiations towards this renewal. I've heard noises from the the Trump side of the equation. They want to bring China in. There's a bunch of sticking points that has, has effectively prevented any forward progress for the time being. I think this becomes a little more moot now that there is, as noted, uh, a presidential transition coming in. But can you talk a bit to kind of the issue at play and whether, A, both sides are, are kind of holding out for a better deal, whether it's from one side? Kind of talk more to the, the issue at play there. I mean, there are two ways of looking at this issue in bilateral relations as it stands today. There's a good faith interpretation of how this administration has gone about arms control and the bad faith interpretation, as in interpreting it as a bad faith actor. If you take it at its word when it comes to bringing China in on that dialogue, making it trilateral instead of bilateral, you know, it, it is technically true that on INF, on USTART, you know, you as a U.S. official could have objections either about compliance or about the scope of those agreements, you might think that they should be ex- expanded uh, to cover more weapons or new weapons, or you know, Russia should be brought back into compliance with uh, parts of those agreements. But I think it, uh, it's really striking that even if those agreements were seen to have issues in practice or in theory before Trump came to office, no one was saying, well, you know, leave New START. Even INF, you know, which was the more criticized agreement of the two, it was not a major viewpoint in you know foreign policy circles that this is an agreement that should be left. Yeah, just to quickly jump in for listeners, INF, Intermediate Nuclear Forces, think of cruise missiles, not intercontinental ballistic missiles, weapons we could theoretically, we being the U.S., leave in Europe. They're much closer to Moscow, considered much more threatening, famously led to tensions in the 80s, which is why the INF was created to begin with. Continue, please. Yeah, uh, so I think it's striking that if, you know, if before uh, the Trump and, uh, Trump presidency, foreign policy circles, even those that had reservations about how these agreements were working, never really advocated for withdrawal from them. There was almost a consensus within the Trump administration that these are agreements that either should be withdrawn no matter what, uh, withdrawn from no, no matter what, or, you know, have to be revised, turned into things that they can never really become. You know, uh, I, I don't think it was ever really reasonable to expect you start to become a trilateral tree. There's beyond the the problems of the logic of why it needs to be sent it to China. There's just the, the the fact of the matter is that China isn't really interested in joining it. So you know you have to know that in when you push for that position. And if you know that and you're pushing for it anyway, then you're just not interested in extending the treaty. So ultimately, I where I fall is that this administration has not been interested in doing arms control in Russia. Arguably, hasn't really been interested in doing arms control with with you know say Iran either. Where it is interested, it pushes for such fanciful terms that there's just no realistic possibility of those agreements coming into fruition. And I think one thing that Russia should, definitely should be happy about is that, you know, this historically reliable area of cooperation is going to, again, be a reliable area of cooperation under the next administration because these are officials who see nuclear arms control as important. They've already, some of them have already been involved in it under the Obama administration. And they, you know, going back to what I said about revenge, you know, however um, aggrieved they may feel about what happened in 2016, what, you know, the, you know, the disappointments of Obama's outreach to Russia, you're not hearing people around Biden say, well, you know, we're not reentering these agreements. The Russians got what they deserve or, you know, we're going to only we're only going to enter them if they're radically revised. Right. There's just a consensus from the people around Biden that, look, these agreements need to be reentered, you know, or extended. And, uh, not only that, not only does that restoration have to, has to ha- uh, have to happen, we just have to keep working on arms control in general of Russia. 
even if it's the only thing we work on with Russia. Understand. Uh, so pivoting now to, you know, we talked about the where we are. You know, it's come up the Biden administration, his ties with Ukraine and his value set as far as Eastern Europe, Russia's quote unquote near abroad is concerned. So I guess from a kind of 30,000 foot view here, what might we expect to go differently under Biden? Where might there be room for more agreement? I mean, I think we just talked about arms control. Seems like area that might be, might be more fruitful. And in contrast, we talked about kind of the rhetoric surrounding human rights. Where might we expect a, a downturn? And I guess more broadly than that, overall, would we expect things to maintain the status quo, get worse, get better? Is it is it possible to to kind of lump that all together? I mean. It's hard for me to say whether it'll get better uh, or get worse, because I think, you know, as, as with other presidencies, you'll just have booms and busts and the relationship, you know, will fluctuate. I think one of the issues is that in terms of timing, I do think, yeah, again, I don't think that the administration's rush policy is a policy of revenge. But I do think that there is a sense of even within this incoming team that there needs to be some kind of correction for the, you know, kid gloves treatment that Russia got on interference. From Trump administration, and so I think what that will involve is some sort of symbolic, but not uh, not particularly you know costly, materially costly act of uh, act of punishment. I think the main issue there is not the possibility that it does become materially costly. I think they'll calculate that well. I think as with a lot of moves in the U.S.-Russia relationship, it's figuring out how it's perceived and uh, you know interpreted or appreciated on an emotional level or uh, you know a psychological level. I think you can very easily make a move that doesn't really um, material terms, poison the well, but offends the sensibilities of those in Moscow in such a way that if it doesn't, you know, poison the well for the next four years, it might delay a real dialogue for a while. So I think in terms of, um, you know, whoever's going to get better or worse with the new president, I think how that first step plays out, maybe that won't happen, but I, I have a sense that it will. I think that will be really important for setting the tone. But um, in terms of where they might agree, I think that there's a possibility that people in this administration still think that there's room for cooperation on the Middle East. I think that's true probably on Iran. I don't know how true it is on Syria, but I suspect you know that that's one of those things that will they'll never fully die. That notion that well, you know, again, Russia is admittedly a you know massive stakeholder in Syria. It admittedly has uh, a lot of influence there. You know, it, it can make things harder or easier for you if you're trying to influence the situation in that war. And you know, that's reason enough to constantly you know. To, to entertain the notion of some sort of uh, cooperation. But also, I know that, especially in democratic foreign policy circles, the brutality with which Russia is engaged in that war just means that it does feel really like a devil's bargain. So we'll see whether um, there's an appetite for that a point. But um, in terms of cooperation, any other areas, I'm not really sure there's much more that they can agree on. I mean, I think that one of the issues is just that um, if you look at the Biden administration's priorities as they've signaled them, I think with COVID-19, climate change, there's not really that much that I can see the two administrations doing in terms of what's what there's political capital or will for. The goals just don't really align. And where uh, there is a interest sort of in a common space, they just don't agree. So, you know, I, I think that Russia is still looking at Europe as a player with whom it might improve relations in the foreseeable future, even after Navalny. But at the same time, Europe is much more interested in what Biden is bringing to the table than what Russia could do in this relationship with, uh, with uh, Europe. 
And what Biden is saying is that, look, you know, you guys have been let down by the last president. And one of the low hanging fruit with which to prove that you've recommitted to that relationship is, you know, a united front against Russia. So where both uh, powers are engaged and interested, they just don't share, you know, they're just not in the same wavelength. So fair enough. Now, I guess one more question regarding the Biden administration, especially as Congress is concerned. So we've talked about kind of this appetite for revenge in foreign policy circles at the same time observing campaigns and what the election was actually about. A lot of Democratic candidates, maybe not a lot, basically all of them actually running, actually talking about the issues. Russia, I mean, as a rhetorical jab against Trump here and there, sure, but really didn't feature heavily in the campaign. Did this give Congress and congressional leaders the ability to, I guess, let's say that a new start arrived on their desk and it needs to vote it up or down. Do they have leeway, room for maneuver to actually um, move that forward? I think you could probably get new start through. I might be dead wrong about how politicized that is. But I mean, my, my sense is that you know, Democratic caucus would support it. Again, there hasn't been let's say, poisoning of that well or sort of politicization of that area as you might, uh, you know, as someone like Stephen Wall might have thought, you know, a few years ago when they were saying that Russia's, you know, the Democratic Party is not the anti-Russia party. Clearly, there are still areas of cooperation where Democrats generally agree, you know, that, that can go on, however um, hostile we may be towards Russia and other areas. And I, I think there are enough Republicans that want to um, align with the restorationism, you know, theme of the Biden administration um, after the last four years that you could probably muster enough support for it. But something I wanted to say about areas of cooperation, not an area of cooperation, but one that officials in the Biden administration might think is, is China. Because I think uh, in addition to COVID and climate change, the China challenge is going to be one thing that uh, the Biden administration is going to uh, prioritize going forward. It's, uh, I think, uh, as much a result of, you know, the DC community's gradual, um, you know, this gradual formation of this consensus that like China is the main threat we're facing going forward, but also just the politics around COVID and how focused the foreign policy conversation has been on China in the last year. I saw a quote from uh, Antony Blinken um, just a few days ago where he pointed out that you know Russia's in a tricky situation because it's technologically dependent on China, and that might be sort of a situation that the U.S. can exploit. Well, funny enough, that's something that State Department officials right now in, in the Trump administration think. They think that there's a, there are cleavages in that relationship that you can exploit to play the two countries off against one another, Russia and China. Now, I, I think that both administrations are, you know, the incoming one and the current one are wrong on that point. I think that as with the, you know, failed efforts to divide Russia and, you know, so-called rogue states with which it has relations. Just as those failed, I, I don't know how much success the U.S. would have in trying to drive a wedge between China, Russia and China. If that view that Blinken Express takes hold in the administration or you know, it's given a chance, you, know, you, you could see some effort to um, get Russia you know, on that uh, anti-China train or you know, at least uh, bring it a little closer to it you know, on that spectrum. But um, I, I just don't think that much will come out of it, and it'll just be another, you know, disappointment in terms of outreach to Russia. But you do think so? Looking at Europe, inter- interestingly enough, to, to tell how things might go with Russia, look at U.S. overtures to Europe. Is your, your kind of takeaway on this topic? Well, I think that Russia policy, again, because we've compartmentalized Russia, cooperation with Russia to such an extent that it's, you know, you can name the one or two areas where it is still viable to have, you know, bilateral cooperation. 
at this point, you don't really have a Russia policy because it's, you know, insofar as Russia policy is actual material cooperation, it's really just arms control. And insofar as it's material punishment, you know, it's more sanctions. It's, you know, resilience building with allies and partners who are threatened by Russia. I think when it comes to you know, that priority of uh, recommitting to Europe and making up for the last four years, it's almost as if Russia becomes a hand, Russia policy becomes a handmaid to Europe policy, where because your priority is to uh, make Europe forget about the last four years, you look at where Europe is on Russia right now and you basically just align with it, you know, because you're not about to make, you know, um, this issue, especially given the commonality that already exists between Europe and the United States, a dispute. You don't want disputes this early on in the Biden-Europe relationship. Makes sense. So turning to our final topic, there was a meme, I mean, both, both here in, in Washington, in the States, and I best I understand in Moscow, too, kind of this uh, Trump nash meme, uh, yeah. mean, meaning in Russian, Trump is ours, um, that Russia, you know, successfully influenced the election to get a friendly face in the White House who'd be great for Moscow and great for Moscow's interests. So I wanted to ask you, I mean, I think the meme is exaggerated, needless to say, but if we had to evaluate whether or not Trump was actually good for Russia these last four years, where do you come down on that question? I mean, I think the argument that you most often hear is, even if there weren't many deliverables in terms of pro-Russian policies or policy concessions to Russia, you know, Trump was just, it created so many issues at home and transatlantic relationship that, you know, Russia could really capitalize on that. I mean, my my problem is that even when you say Russia capitalizes on these things, it has to capitalize on them to some end. It has to leverage them for some outcome. I don't see what those outcomes are. I don't see what Russia has gotten, uh, what Russia has secured through, you know, leveraging these cleavages and, you know, the polarization that is presidency unleashed, you know, the incompetence. And as I alluded to already, I, I think in terms of actual policy concessions, there are some suggestions that there were policy concessions that Trump wanted to make that he didn't get to make. There, you know, we might hear more on that. But you know, as it stands right now, I think that it's really exaggerated the extent to which this administration wanted to give gifts to Russia. You know, as opposed to um, basically take a softer rhetorical line from past presidents, but essentially take a hard material one. I mean. Sanctions didn't just come out of Congress this, you know, over these past four years. It came out of the Treasury, it came out of the State Department. I don't think that it was always a result of congressional pressure. You know, there were cooperation agreements, you know, intelligence cooperation agreements and other forms of assistance that were extended to, um, you know, in between states like Ukraine and Georgia. Again, obviously, you know, the Zelensky-Trump affair means that it's really qualified the extent to which you can say support and help offered to those administrations, uh, to those governments. But, uh, I, I mean, I think it's certainly true that there are more sanctions today than there were four years ago. There, uh, you know, is more support offered, certainly to, if you count, you know, lethal weapons in Ukraine than there were four years ago uh, to these in-between states. And I think most problematically for Russia is just that this cause of outreach to Russia you know, on a meaningful level, not just, you know, sort of tackle cooperation on, issue, you know, issue by issue basis, but, you know, real attempts to, you know, revamp the relationship. I mean, it's basically uh, tainted and will be for, I think, a while because no one in the Republican Party is going to touch it for a while just because, you know, it'll seem like Trump redux and no one in the Democratic Party wants to do it. And they probably won't, you know, absent a sea change in, you know, the domestic situation in Russia. So we're on the level of, you know, uh, glass things or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, on the whole, I think Russia lost. Uh, you know, if, if they did put him in the White House, then it was a bad idea. And uh, if they didn't and they thought they lucked out, they really didn't. 
So I, I think the cause of, you know, detente of Russia or, uh, you know, resets of Russia is definitely a dead one compared to where it might have been four years ago under Clinton administration if it had come into power. So your camp, Ninash, he's not ours, so to speak. You know, people joke that, you know, once he's done with his term, you know, maybe he'll move to Moscow. I, I don't think people in Moscow want him after the last four years. I don't know how uh, well received the guest he'd be. Fair enough. So as a last kind of creative challenge, less analytical. So we talked kind of about how over the last couple of administrations, there have been different approaches. But going back to the Cold War and even you know since then, there have been these branding efforts. Like what is our Russia policy in a word or in two? So we've talked about containment, reproachment. Obama very uh, infamously in the community had, I guess, then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton give Sergei Lavrov the button that they meant to say reset. It actually said overcharge in Russian, Peregruska, which made them more prescient than they knew at the time. So if we had to kind of give Trump's Russia policy a label of a word or two, uh, what would you call it? And then turning to Biden, how might rather, how might we brand that? I mean, for Biden, it sounds like almost based on the kind of the degree of compartmentalization that it's really the policy is no policy or small issues. But for Trump, I mean, what could we say marginally better if he was trying to sell it? Yeah, it, it doesn't fit on a you know bumper sticker, but basically, you know, one one of these things that you, you sometimes find in analyses of U.S. Russia relations is that there's a problem with personalization, which is that the relations become so heavily personalized between heads of state that it's not really um, you know uh, even when there are good times, goodwill doesn't really like seep down to the level of the bureaucracies. You don't build uh, you know this appetite in the long term for a good relationship, and so you know if the presidents change, that's usually enough for massive you know uh, decline in quality of relations. I think the personalization under this administration uh, under Trump took that notion to the extreme because what Trump did was he didn't just say, let's make relations dependent on the relations between the two presidents. He said, why don't we just separate the relations between two presidents and the relations between two countries? You and I will have camaraderie and get along at summits and things like that, exchange jokes at, you know, journalist expense and things like that, and my political opponent's expenses. And meanwhile, our two countries will just be, you know, in as much conflict as before, if not, you know, more. Because that's really what it is. I mean, the most that Russia is able to say for the last four years is that, you know, good you know, good lines out of Trump about, about Crimea, about, uh, you know, moral equivalences between the U.S. and Russia, about Putin. But, you know, that again, that's if the line is, you know, personalization gone awry, it's like, well, you know, this relationship become, became so personalized that personal relationship just became um, separate from the interstate relations. One thing you can count on with Biden is that there's just not going to be a personal relationship between Biden and Putin. I mean, no one, no one is counting on uh, these two guys to get along behind closed doors. It's just not going to happen. Uh, you know, if anything, I would actually want to keep these guys out of the same room and just leave it to their deputies because it's just going to be, um, you know, a total a personal feud between these guys. You know, for Putin, it's the fact that, you know, Biden talks so tough about Russia. You know, Biden talks about Russia in the same way that, you know, he talked about Trump on the campaign trail during the primary, you know, you know talking about, you know, how, like, you know, he'd take this guy out behind, you know, behind the school if they were in school and, you know, beat him up. Like, I feel like that's the sort of level of personal relations they have between them. So, you know, if personalization had gone awry as the Trump administration here, it's, you know, sort of predictability and competence, you know, if it's entrusted to 
these you know mid-level guys if you basically say look you know we can't really have a functional relationship if there is active involvement by you know the most prominent figures in the administration let's just delegate this to you know the deputy secretaries of state you know and deputy foreign ministers um, you know of our respective countries um, you know, I, I think that would probably be for the best very very well put uh, that's all the time we have thank you so much for joining a very enlightening conversation and guess we'll see what happens starting in january Thanks for having Thanks again to Lincoln for joining, and thanks to you, listener, for your continued support. We should have another episode coming before the year is out, so stay tuned. Be sure to follow BMB Russia and Ukraine at the Twitter handle at Bear Market Brief. BMB Russia and Ukraine is a project of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, that's FPRI, a nonpartisan think tank based in Philadelphia. For more updates about this project and others, stop by fpri.org. We'll catch you next time.